0: You are listening to the Wickenburg Pulpit, the preaching ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, Arizona, where we seek to be faithful to scripture and relevant to life. Before we dive into the word, I mentioned as we last week, I'm going to do something a little bit different during our pastoral prayer time want to highlight and pray for one of our churches in the Southern Baptist Convention here in Arizona, and then a missionary. And so uh, today we're going to be praying for First uh, Baptist Church of Sun City, uh, Pastor Bobby Aldis down there, and um, just, um, they uh, committed to expository preaching, much like we are. Um, They do a lot of fellowship events, they're they're a, a senior adult church, a lot of senior adults in their community. Um, And on their website, they say they're deeply rooted in God's word and deeply committed to evangelism and mission. Um, And uh, FBC Sun City has been a part of starting 21 churches in the greater Phoenix area. So we want to continue to pray for their ministry and their pastor. And um, I want to introduce to you Jared and Jennifer Huntley. Uh, They are North American missionaries in Texas planting a church there. Uh, called Pillar Church of San Antonio. Uh, They were um, in Washington, D.C., and they were engaged in uh, a military community. And so they grew a heart to plant churches within military communities after their experience in the military. And Jared had served in the Army and knew the unique challenges of military culture. And Jennifer also understanding what it was like to be a military spouse. And so they... um, are planting a church there in San Antonio, and one of the things that they do in those communities is called gospel and grub. Uh, Sounds good. Uh, They lead teams, a team into the city in places where there's a lot of foot traffic, and for an hour, they pray and share the gospel with people that they meet, and then after that, they all have dinner together and share their experiences. So that's Jared and Jennifer Huntley, uh, church planters and missionaries there in uh, San Antonio, Texas. So let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you, Lord, and I want to thank you, Lord, that as as a church, we are a part of something much bigger than just our church. We have partners literally around the globe making the gospel known uh, to people that um, need to hear it. Father, we pray right here in our own community, uh, First Baptist Church of Sun City and Pastor Bobby Aldis, Lord, as they are in a senior adult community, Lord, we pray that the gospel would take root in uh, the seniors' lives in that community, that you would produce mature disciples for Christ through that church and through that ministry. And what a legacy of contributing to planning 21 churches in the greater Phoenix area. And Lord, we pray that you use that church to do much more. And we pray for them, we lift them up to you. And Father, we pray for Jared and Jennifer Huntley. Uh, church planters at pillar church in san antonio texas in the military community and lord we just pray your blessing upon them and lord we pray through this gospel and grub outreach that they do to share the gospel with people that they meet for an hour a week now lord we pray that through their efforts that many will come to know you they'll hear the gospel and be saved we thank you for their faithfulness to relocate and to minister to military families, and we pray that those military families who don't know you will find the hope of Christ through the gospel. Lord, we pray now as we dive into your word that you speak to us, that you prepare our hearts to hear what you would have to say to us through Nehemiah today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You can turn in your Bibles to... Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm going to actually attempt to get through two chapters today, so that may be a little challenging, but hopefully we can do it and still make it in time for lunch. Thankfully, we don't have to go very far. Our culture today values comfort. I read an article recently about how to make people comfortable in church. It ranged from the seating to the temperature to having the best coffee and snacks to the right sound and lighting levels. In many churches, there's an emphasis on comfort, and at some level, I think there's a little bit of wisdom in that. If you want people to sit and listen to you longer than 15 minutes, you don't want their back aching or having a heat stroke. But the church doesn't exist for our comfort. Brett McCracken, author of the book Uncomfortable, the awkward and essential challenge of Christian community, he writes this The church doesn't exist to meet our every need and satisfy our various checklists of tastes and comfort zone preferences. If anything, it exists to destabilize such things. The church should draw us out of the dead eye stupor of a culture of comfort worship. It should jostle us awake to the reality that comfort is one of the greatest obstacles to growth. Far too long, the mantra in Christian culture has been seeker-sensitive and have it your way. The mentality has been consumer comfort. Find a church that meets your needs. Find a church that feels like home. Find a church where the worship music moves you, the pastor's preaching compels you, and the homogeneous community welcomes you. If it gets difficult or uncomfortable, cut ties immediately. A dozen other options await. And we treat church often as a almost like we treat fast food. We go where we want to go and we can have it our way. But what we see in Nehemiah chapter 9 today especially is the old covenant community is not a community that pursues comfort. But it's a community that faces the ugliness of their sin. We see here in Nehemiah 9 the gathered community is a confessing community, but they're also laser focused on the compassion and faithfulness of God. We see a gathered community who resolves once again to live in obedience to the word that has been revived and refreshed among them, that 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 has been preached to them for the first time in close to a century. As I read this text, I want our main point to, to be this, that we must gather to confess sin before God and commit to living And holiness to God. We're going to get through 9 and 10, but allow me to read chapter 9. It says, now the 24th day of this month. And and as I read this, I want you to pay attention to the back and forth between their sin and disobedience and to God's grace. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Now on the Levites' platforms to Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, Chenani, and they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God, then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hasbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethiah said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bow down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, of the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants as you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. And heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and the people of the land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through on the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone in raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and laws through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light. For them, the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, forty years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. You also gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted them to, to a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as desired. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing. Hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled, and grew fat, and reveled in your great goodness. But they became disobedient, and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who had had admonished them so they might return to you, and they committed great blasphemies." Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven according to your great compassion. You gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they would rule over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion. And admonished them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments. But sinned against your ordinances. By which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However... You bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. I'm going to stop there. You see that. You see Israel's history from the covenant he made with Abram all the way to the conquest of the land of Canaan and following. We see a sinful people, a rebellious people, and we see a gracious and compassionate God. The first thing I'd like us to see from this text is that we must gather to uncomfortably confess sin. In chapter 7, after the wall was built, the people were assembled. In chapter 8, they gather under the preaching of the word. And the next day, the men gathered to study the word, and they began to worship again according to the word. And they began celebrating a feast that they were commanded to observe that had been neglected for almost thousands of years. They were rejoicing in their obedience to the word. When we come to chapter 9, it's the 24th day of the month. The Feast of Booths that we saw about last week ended just two days ago prior to this. Every day during the Feast of Booths, they read from the book of the law. What we see here in verse 9 is that they are assembled again and they are assembled to confess sin. They are assembled and, and it says that they were fasting. And it says that they put on sackcloth. And put dirt upon themselves. Now, fasting would cause them physical discomfort as they would be hungry. Hopefully, this sermon doesn't run long enough and cause you the same discomfort. But they would put on sackcloth. Now, this goes back to my childhood a little bit. Um, anybody remember? Anybody ever have field days where you do this sack race? Does anybody? Was that a thing out here? Or is that just, we just do that? Yeah, and you'd get in this burlap sack and would do a, this race, hopping down a cone and coming back. That's, why do we do that? But it's that, that rough material that, that they would put that on and it would cause their skin to be itchy all over. It would be uncomfortable. And then they would put dirt upon themselves, making themselves feel dirty as if they needed to go take a shower. All of this was to make them feel uncomfortable because what they're doing is they're confessing sin. And and, and they don't want to be comfortable in their sin. Their sin is uncomfortable. They want to have a physical depiction of repentance. That they're uncomfortable in their sin and they need to confess it. First, what we see here is that in verse 2, they separate themselves from all foreigners. And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. As they separated themselves from their foreigners, this wasn't because of racial superiority. It was because, as we saw in, in the book of Judges, when they would align themselves with foreign nations, what would that quickly lead to? Idolatry and sinfulness. And so in separating themselves from foreigners, they are, they, it is a symbol of repentance that we will worship God alone. The second thing that we see is they're confessing, it says they confessed their sins. They are confessing their own particular sins the way that they have been disobedient before God. And then it says they confessed the iniquities of their fathers. Now, they're not somehow responsible for their ancestor's sins. They can't repent of someone else's sin But what they are doing is they're acknowledging that it was their father's sin and their ancestor's sin, as they've been a sinful and rebellious people, as will be described in the rest of chapter 9. It is their sin that has led them into the captivity that they are being delivered from. That, That Israel as a whole has been a rebellious and disobedient people. And coming back into a right relationship with God under His word... Gathered with the community, they are confessing their sin and making themselves physically uncomfortable. In a culture that prioritizes comfort, it's hard to talk about being uncomfortable. Confessing sin may be a little bit awkward. This is why John 3.20 says, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed it's not natural for us to come to the light it's not natural for us to confess our sins and to put our sins out there that's what we're called to do we're called to confess sin there were four preachers they met for a friendly gathering and during the conversation one preacher said hey our our people come to us and they pour out their hearts they confess Certain sins and needs, let's do the same. Confession is good for the soul. Well, all of them agreed. Well, one pastor confessed that he liked to go to the movies and would sneak off when he was away from his church. The second confessed to, that he liked to smoke cigars. And the third confessed that he liked to play cards. Now, I'm not sure why those are particularly uh, listed here. But when it came to the fourth one, he wouldn't confess. The others pressed him, saying, come, hey, we confessed our vices, now, what's, what's, your, what's your sin? He finally answered, he says, it's gossiping, and I can't get, wait, wait to get out of here. <laughs> the reality is, we need to confess our sins to God, repent of those sins. I, I read Psalm 32 last week, and it says this, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Church, it may be awkward and uncomfortable to confess sin, but keeping silent about it and living with that guilt, it takes a toll on you. But verse 5 gives us the promise of Christ. It says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. You know what happens when you confess your sin to God and you repent from it? He forgives you. He cleanses you. He he bestows grace and mercy upon you. We must confess our sins to the Lord. But you know we're also told to confess our sins to one another. That's what James tells us to do. Is to confess our sins to one another that we may be healed. Now, Why would we do that? Confessing sin to another seems a little bit uncomfortable. But if the church is being the church, then the church ought to be a place for accountability, not judgment. Confessing sin to another brother and sister in Christ is so that they can pray for you or perhaps encourage or counsel you and spur you on to godliness. Confession of sin... May be uncomfortable, but we must do it so that we can receive God's forgiveness. Number two, that we must joyfully celebrate the forgiving, compassionate grace of God. When we confess sin, the goal is not to waller in self-pity, but to throw ourselves in the never-ending grace of God. We don't neglect talking about sin at the church because we all sin. We all need to be made to feel uncomfortable in our sin. But the point is not to despair. The point is to run to the fountain of grace that we find in Christ. In the bulk of chapter 9, we get a corporate prayer, a prayer that recounts Israel's history. We see creation described in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 9, 6. We see the covenant with Abraham described in Nehemiah 9, 7 through 8. The exodus and the wilderness wanderings are described in chapter 9, verses 9 through 21, the bulk of the the passage. The conquest of Canaan, the promised land, is described in chapter 9, verses 22 through 26. The period of the judges is described in nine twenty seven through 28. And then in verse 32, we have a plea for restoration. Now, when we see the sin of Israel, we see this back and forth of sin and God's compassion towards sinners. He made the heavens. He's the God who created everything. He, he, he set apart Abram and, and, and called him to, 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 to as this co- entered into covenant with him, that through his offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And there in that covenant with Abraham, we get a glimpse of Jesus, as Galatians tells us that it is the seed of Abraham that's Christ. And he calls Abraham out. He's going to give him a land. He's going to do this. But then they are in Egypt, and they are slaves in Egypt. And it says in verse 9, it says, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cries by the Red Sea. God is a God who sees and hears us. And we see much more there as he delivered them through the Red Sea. He gave them his law. He guided them through the pillar of fire and by night. We see God's overwhelmingly grace and his mercy upon them, calling Abraham out, guiding them, giving them statutes on how to live as God's redeemed people. And then we get to verse 16. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. Isn't that a good description of sin? It's arrogance, thinking we know better than God. And we we see arrogance described again in 29. In verse 29, it says, They acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments. They were stubborn. They refused to listen. They failed to remember God's wondrous deeds. And so much that verse 17, they became stubborn and they, they would think that it would be better to go back to slavery in Egypt. I believe sin often does that. Sin is, gives a spiritual amnesia. If they didn't remember God's wondrous deeds and that they would rather go back to the place of their slavery. It would be better for them, they thought. Sin caused them to forget all that God had already done for them. But yet, we see in verse 18, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. This is who God is. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He does not forsake. He does not give up on his people. We see that in verse 18, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal, and said, "This is your God who brought you up from Egypt." Now, can you imagine that in that scene in, in, in ancient Israel? God had delivered them through the Red Sea. God had guided them through the pillar of cloud by fire, uh, and, and the cloud, um, the pillar of cloud, and the pillar and the pillar of fire. See, so guided them. God had done so much for them, and they build this statue. A golden calf made from all the jewelry of the people that Aaron made for them. And said, hey, this is your God. This is who delivered you out of the land of Egypt. What? No, that's just a statue you just made two minutes ago. It didn't do anything. It was blasphemous to attribute the work of God to the statue, as it says in verse 18. They committed great blasphemies. Yet in verse 19, you in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. Do you see the theme of God's compassion throughout this passage? Do you see the theme that God does not forsake his people? And we continue on, you you continue to go through this passage and, and we see the grace of God as he As he gives their spirit, he gives them this pillar of fire, this pillar of of cloud. He doesn't doesn't revoke that from them. In in fact, he continues to give that manna. He gives them water from the rock for their thirst in the wilderness. And then verse 21, it says, Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. They were going through those wilderness wanderings, and they did not lack nothing it says their clothes did not wear out nor did their feet swell I just did a load of laundry the other day and somehow an orange crayon got in and got orange all over my t-shirts they're ruined but yet 40 days of wandering in the wilderness and their clothes didn't even wear out Isn't that crazy? Nor did their feet swell. How in the world did their feet not swell after walking around for 40 days in the wilderness? I went on a mile and a half hike yesterday with shoes on and I'm tired. God took care of them. And and as they begin to conquest the land, he gives them these nations over to them. He gives them the the land of Canaan. They take possession of it. Down in verse 25, look at it. They, They took possession of houses full of every good thing. Hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. Look at all that they have. So they ate, were filled, and grew fat. I feel attacked by that. I'm going to go do that here in just a moment. And they reveled in your great goodness. God had been so good to them. And what's their response? But they became disobedient and rebelled against you. What? Are you serious? They cast your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them so they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Man, I'd be done with these people by now, wouldn't you? I'd give up. God gave them into captivity. They delivered them into the hand of their oppressors but when they cried to you in the time of their distress their distress you heard from heaven according to your great compassion and you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors even after all of their sin after all of their rebellion god heard their cries and he delivers them once again this is talking about the period of the judges well, you would think after God would deliver again that they'd be ready to follow the Lord. Look how sin works. Verse 28, as soon as they had rest, what did they do in verse 28? They did evil again before you. That's our sin nature. That is who we are apart from Christ. God delivers us time and time again, and the moment we have a chance to sin, that's what we're going to do. So he abandons them over to their enemies again. But when they cry again, he hears again, you heard from heaven, and it says, many times you rescued them according to your compassion. And we see that in the book of Judges. Time and time again, they cry out to God, and time and time again, he delivers them. Verse 29, you admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he shall live. But instead they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. And we could continue on and on and on. Verse 31, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. We see all of this. All of these verses, we see their continued rebellion, how they kept going back to their sin. But do you see the gracious and compassionate character of God through this? Think about Israel and how God did not make an end of them nor forsake them. I sure would have, but God is a lot nicer than me. Think about how many times should God have given up on me? How many times should God have given up on you? And yet he has not made an end to us. He's a gracious and compassionate God. Now, I want to put God's compassion and His faithfulness in the context of the grand story of the Bible. Why is God so compassionate with these people? Why is He so bent on delivering them and rescuing them time and time again? Why is He so faithful to this people? Because He's made a promise to them. made a promise to them that through this people, Someone would come. Years later, centuries later, someone would come. And who is that? Jesus Christ. He is not going to give up on these people. He's going to continue to pour out his compassion upon these people because he is going to bring us Christ so that he can pour out his compassion and mercy and his grace on who? You and me. Praise God for that. God did not give up on these people so that he could give us Christ, the greatest act of grace and compassion. God hasn't just provided us manna, but he's given us the bread of life. He hasn't just provided us water from a rock, but he's provided us living water in Jesus. He didn't just deliver us from Pharaoh in Egypt, he has delivered us from sin and Satan. He didn't merely give us his law, he gave us his spirit. He gives us all these things, yet often we still arrogantly rebel against him. We still sin and disobey. We still often have spiritual amnesia and forget what God has done for us. But even in that, he continues to pour out his grace and mercy time and time again on me and on you. He hasn't put an end to us. It says that he bore with them many times. And I am glad he hasn't given up on me. The Lord knows I've given him plenty of reasons to do so. Church, God is a God who hears our cries. Cry out to him and he'll hear you. God is gracious, compassionate, and forgiving. He doesn't forsake his people, he is patient toward us. Dear sinner, come to God confessing. Your sin to Him, and He will be gracious and compassionate towards you. Where in your life has God borne with you for many years? I can think in my life where I've given God plenty of reasons to put an end to me, yet many times His grace and mercy has been upon me. Dear church, may we uncomfortably confess sin, confess our arrogance, confess our stubbornness, our rebellion, but may we always run to the God who relentlessly forgives, the gracious and compassionate God who will not forsake us, but who continues to rescue us and who bears with us for many years and who will not put an end to us. Run to him today. Come to my final point, which comes from chapter 10. What does a people do who have confessed their sin to God, who, remem- who knows the grace of God, who's continually been given His grace and mercy? What do we do? What's our response to that? Well, the response of the people in chapter 10 was that they all came together if you'll look in chapter 10, verse, verses 1 down through 27, you get a bunch of these names. And what they're doing is they're signing a covenant together. They are covenanting together to live a life of obedience and holiness in response to the word. And as we respond to the grace of God in his word, we must willingly covenant together to live a life of obedience and holiness. What do we do in response to the grace and compassion of God? Well, many times Israel went back to their sin, but this time they get it right. They commit to living a life of obedience and holiness. And here they make the covenant together. They have an official document that they they put their names to, an official record. Saying this is how we're going to live together. I don't want to gloss over this this is really an Old Testament precursor to church membership here you have a group of people agreeing together and there's an official record and this is how we're going to live together in response to what God has done for us if that doesn't sound like what we're doing here I don't know what does Well, we won't find a chapter or verse in the New Testament saying, Thou shalt keep a record of church members. Church membership is often assumed in the New Testament. There's so many passages about the majority making decisions or immoral people being expelled from among you, the church. Or in Acts, believers are getting saved and being added to their number. The number of what? The number of the church. But church membership is more than a record of names it is a record of names of people entering into covenant with one another and with God to live a certain way and that's what we see in this particular passage after we see these lists of names in verse 28 it says the rest of the people the priests are Levites the gatekeepers the singers and the temple servants it says all those had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God their wives and their sons and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding. Again, we see that they're separating themselves from the people of the lands. They are separating themselves from foreigners, again, in an act of repentance. Now look at the bulk of their commitment together. It says, we're joining with our kinsmen. They're nobles, and they're taking on themselves a curse and are an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and His ordinances and His statutes. They're committing to obedience. And then they're going to give some specifics of how they're committing to obey here in just a moment. They're committing to live in obedience to God's law. The first thing that they say here, the more specific, it shows us that they're committing to practical holiness, is verse 30. It says, and we're committing that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Again, the issue here is not racial superiority. It's not an ethnic cleansing. At the end of the book of Ezra, it records that some of the Israelites had taken wives from among the peoples of the lands. It says, so that the holy race is intermingled with the peoples of the lands, and it was an act of unfaithfulness. The prohibition to not marry outside of Israel was not of racial superiority, but one of holiness. The pagan lands worshipped false gods, and again, we saw that at play at at the end of Joshua's time, and in the period of the book of Judges, where they're no longer worshipping God, they're they're worshipping the gods of the peoples. And as a result, they do evil in the sight of the Lord. This was an issue of holiness. That when they compromise on this issue, it leads to idolatry and all kinds of sinfulness. So when they say, though, they will not intermarry with the nations, they won't give their daughters to the husbands of nations, and they won't take wives for their sons from among the, the foreign nations. It was to keep themselves holy as the holy people of God they were called to be. similar to what we're told in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And We still have restrictions on us because of holiness. As a believer in Christ, if, you're, if there's a single person that is a believer in Christ, who ought they to marry? Another believer. Why? Why? Because if they get yoked together with an unbeliever, they may fall into sin. They may fall away from the Lord and stop going to church, stop reading their Bibles, and start living a life of sin. They were committed to living in practical holiness. But but the second thing, they're committed to preserve holy worship. The next thing they commit to is in regards to the Sabbath. It says there in chapter 10, Verse 31, it says, As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. They were committed to the Sabbath. Hey, we're not going to do things on the Sabbath that we're not supposed to do because it is a day set apart to be holy. Now, we no longer worship on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10 speaks of this, pointing to our future, the Sabbath points to our future rest that we have through Christ. Interesting that Matthew 12, there's a long conversation and teaching about the Sabbath, but prior to that in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Sabbath is fulfilled when we lay our sins at the feet of Jesus and stop trying to earn our salvation and rest in Him by faith. But that doesn't mean there's not principles for us here. We worship on the Lord's Day. We've set aside the first day of the week to worship that we've set apart as holy. Anybody know the significance of why we worship on Sunday as opposed to any other day of the week? What happened on Sunday? Rose from the dead. Every Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus by gathering. And we listed some things last week of things that we're supposed to do in worship, from preaching to singing to taking the Lord's Supper. And We must commit to preserving these things, to, to, to worship God as He has called us to be. And that's what they're doing. Hey, we're not going to profane the Sabbath. We're not going to profane the day of the Lord. We're going to worship according to God's word. I made a statement last week. And I said, if you had unlimited resources and unlimited time that caused you, and that and that alone, if you had unlimited time and resources, you could do whatever you want, you could go wherever you want. And if that caused you to spend less time with God's people under God's word instead of more, then you might not be a Christian. And I stand by that. This community here made a conscious decision to honor God on the day set apart for worship. Another thing that we see is they had a commitment to trust in God's provision. Along with Sabbath worship, there was every seventh year they were told not to work in their fields and gather their crops. And they would also forgive any debts that were owed to them. Now, not taking care of your crops for a whole year sounds like really bad uh, agriculture advice. But it's great spiritual advice to trust God in obedience to his word. And lastly, as we'll see, is they, they had a commitment to the priority of congregational worship. I want you to see in verse 32, it says, We placed ourselves under obligation. So we're committing to this. We're obligating ourselves to this. And they're giving their resources, their money and their resource to a whole host of things. But I want to, to draw out... the the theme of what they're giving to. Look in verse 32, where it says they're giving uh, to the service of the house of our God. Verse 33, it says to the work of the house of our God. The end of verse 33. Verse 34 says to the house of our God. 35, to the house of the Lord. 36, they talk about bringing things to the house of our God. 37 says they're at the chambers of the house of our God. 38 in the house of our God. And then in the final verse in 39, at the end it says thus we will not neglect the house of our God. This was a church that was committed to worship. Worship. They were committed to the priority of the Congregational Worship, and they gave their money and their time and their resources to this time together. Now, we saw last week that our worship practices worship practices, are different from those of the Old Testament community. Much of what they did was in anticipation for christ's coming and what we how we worship is we are focusing on the fact that christ came but here as we see this old testament picture of the gathered covenant community confessing sin remembering god's grace and compassion and entering into covenant with god and one another to live in holy obedience we see a picture of what the church would eventually become the church is not a new idea, it is, it's the fulfillment and culmination of the community that we see here in Nehemiah. As Gentiles, we've been grafted into the covenant community, and Christ calls this new body of confessing Jews and Gentiles the church. To the outside world, the church looks like something they hope would be torn down. We're just a bunch of normal people committing our lives to a Jewish carpenter who claimed to be God who was crucified on a Roman cross. Why would anyone devote their lives to that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus said he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Christ was and is fiercely committed to the church by dying for her. And therefore we must covenant together and commit to walking in holy obedience as the bride of Christ that we are called to be. The people of God covenanted together to live a holy life in obedience to God's word in response to what God, who God is and what he had done for them. As we close, this is an Old Testament picture of what he calls us to do. He calls us to confess sin. He calls us to remember who he is, a gracious and compassionate God who does not forsake us. And he calls us to enter into covenant with him and with one another to live a life of obedience and holiness. In response to what he's done. Mark Dever writes this. Church membership is not simply a record box we once checked. It's not a sentimental feeling. It's not an expression of affection toward a familiar place. It should be the reflection of a living commitment or it's worthless. Biblical church membership comes from our mutual obligations as spelled out in all of Scripture's one another passages. Love one another. Serve one another. Encourage one another. All of these commands should be encapsulated in the covenant of a healthy church. Here at First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, we want to be a church that regularly confesses sin before God and one another. But we want to gather to joyfully celebrate the forgiving grace of God. And we come to covenant together in response to the God who relentlessly forgives sinners through Christ because he's overwhelmingly gracious and compassionate towards us. If you're an unbeliever today, if you're not trusting in Christ, the invitation to you is simple. Acknowledge your sin before God, confess that to him, and turn from your sin and turn to the God who is compassionate and gracious to forgive sin. God has forgiven our sins through Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross. Come to him. If you're a believer this morning, remember who God is Find joy in the compassion and grace of God that he's lavished upon you. Joyfully embrace the truth that he has not forsaken you and he has not put an end to you. And if you haven't done so, we would love for you to enter in, into covenant with us as a church. If you haven't already, through church membership, agreeing with one another to live in a holy obedience in response to God and his grace. And a word to us as a church. May our names not just be names on a church roll, but may we joyfully enter into covenant with one another, agreeing to live lives of holiness both individually and corporately. May the world outside look upon the saints at First Southern Baptist Wickenburg and say there's something different about those people, and I have to know what it is. By our commitment to live in obedience to the word, to make worship a priority, to regularly confess sin, May the lost in Wickenburg and around the globe discover the gracious and compassionate God who saves sinners through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, as we look in this text, we see the horrible sinfulness of Israel. Time and time again, they arrogantly rebel against you, much like ourselves. But time and time again, you have delivered them in your grace and compassion and God in your grace and compassion you have sent your son Jesus Christ to save sinners once for all thank you for your grace and mercy in Christ that we do not deserve we are much like the Israelites we do not deserve the grace and compassion you give us in Christ but you've lavished it upon us And God, may that, in turn, may we respond by a living commitment to covenant together to live in holiness and response to your gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.